welcome to the Sacred Ancestry Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Worm. I'm so excited to be blasting through your headphones, through your laptop, through your car, wherever you are. And today is such a special episode. I have Tanya Glenn with me, and she's such a power, powerful person in PTSD, mental health, 28 years of clinical experience, uh, helping first responders with PTSD and, and uh, things like that. She's the author of First Responder Resilience and works with CISM and EMDMR and uh, all those type of things. So Tanya, can you introduce yourself a little more and, and tell us your story? I'm honored to be on your show and I really appreciate the opportunity. So um, just, I guess a little bit about my background so your listeners understand where I'm coming from. Is this actually, this journey started 28 years ago. Um, it was actually uh, when the uh, ATF raided the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. And I watched that going down on the news and I knew that day that my calling was to work with public safety and to go to high velocity events like that and help people like the ATF. And so I was three months from finishing my master's degree at the University of Texas and I went to school the next day and I informed my professors that I was gonna go to places like Waco and help people like the ATF and they told me I was crazy. Um, and so here I am 28 years later, just as crazy as everybody else. <laughs> and I really, really absolutely love what I do. I set out to, um, to really do the best I can for our customers and figured out very quickly that the way to help first responders, especially who are you know, dealing with significant trauma, which is just awful, is to, is to meet them where they are and to get into their hearts and minds. So I actually, for um, the first 10 years of my career, I worked in a level one trauma center. I worked weekend nights. And during the weekdays, I was growing my tiny little practice on the side. And what I did on Thursday night to flip my schedule back to nights to prepare for the weekend is I would just go ride. I rode thousands of hours, um, police, fire, EMS, helicopter, you know, air medical. Uh, I just kept riding and I just kept learning and I just kept experiencing that. I went through a police academy and I also went through, um, I went through EMT basic training just to understand. And I found that to be the most valuable thing that I've ever done in my career. Um, knowing the lingo, speaking the language and understanding uh, just the stress levels and the, you know, zero, zero miles an hour to 90 miles an hour, you know, sheer boredom to sheer terror and all of the things that go along with that. Um, it's been, it's been an amazing journey and uh, I have the best, I am biased, but I have the best job in the world. Wow. That's, that's quite the story. And, uh, that's so interesting that Waco was, was kind of the catalyst for you and, and the way you're talking about the language and, uh, kind of the, all that experience that you gained through the, the ride-alongs and the trainings, you know, that's something I've experienced too, is, is I feel like the wildland firefighters uh, that I've worked with, I can relate to them. And it's almost the language builds that rapport so much faster because you know exactly what they're talking about. And uh, that's, that's amazing. And I, I'm really interested uh, that, you know, all that training that you went through in that time uh, gave you that experience and that, that, you know, foundation to work with these people. That's so amazing. And, uh, you know, just for, for our listeners, like I want, I want to hear your definition of, of uh, you know, PTSD and what that looks like in first responders. And, and, you know, in your documentary, you talked about sometimes we don't even know we have PTSD, right? It's, it's, it's denial is kind of part of it, right? Absolutely. So I think that one of the first things I like to differentiate, especially for our clients who come in and, and get treatment and get care is, um, you, you know, all first responders at some point in their career are going to have the call or the incident that they just can't shake. 
And um, what happens a lot of times is that the, the call that you can't shake, it's really just kind of trapped and locked up in the frontal lobe of your brain because your brain can't process it and download it to your long-term memory like normal. And one of the things that we're really differentiating these days is the difference between post-traumatic stress syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder. So all first responders are gonna have post-traumatic stress syndrome. And the good news is it is completely normal. Like everybody who goes through a trauma that's beyond their human coping capacity is gonna struggle for a while. But really what it boils down to is what you do with it. What we tra train our, all of our customers to do and all of our peer support teams to do is to listen and to kind of put the fingers on the pulse of those who are involved or you know, just kind of that self-check if you are involved directly. And to understand that, you know, what we're looking for is your healthy, resilient brain through all the training you've had, through the fact that, you know, public safety personalities are generally like strong-willed and very determined people. And we want you to understand that by seven days post-incident, where we want that call is starting to fade. In other words, it's, it's not as pervasive. The replay is not as pervasive as it was on days one, two, and three. And then by 14 days out, we want that thing banked in your long-term memory. Now it's normal to have a plethora of calls that you'll never forget, but the difference between a bad memory and a trauma that's unresolved is the trauma continues to just hit you right between the eyes over and over and over again and you feel like you can't move past it. Versus let's say you work a really bad accident in the middle of an intersection and every time you drive through that intersection you think about the accident, but it doesn't ruin your day. It doesn't trigger you into this unnecessary fight or flight response and you're able to just continue on. It wasn't a pleasant memory, but you get, you get through it. And, and when we know it's problematic is we hit that two week mark. And the reason I like to say two weeks is because at that point it's all prevention and we're preventing, we're mitigating, we're, we're basically nipping it in the bud. And the issue with a lot of first responders is that they don't know this is normal. They don't know to get help. They keep going, they keep coping. You know, they walk it off, they, you know, God forbid, you know, they try to suck it up or drink it off. And over time, the, the calls that become the problem of PTSD are the ones that absolutely stay stuck in your frontal lobe. And what happens over time is um, your frontal lobe hands you what you saw, heard, tasted, touched, and smelled during the day in triggers and during the nightmare and nightmares and night, uh, during the nighttime in nightmares and night terrors. And that activates you into a fight or flight response. And over time, you produce so much cortisol in all these fight or flight responses that it crosses the blood brain barrier. And that's when it causes damage to the brain because the cortisol crossing the blood brain barrier hits your hippocampus and it shrinks it, which then hijacks your amygdala caveman, which sends you into fight or flight all the time. And that's a really complicated problem. So the key is to understand that there's different levels and there's different, different sort of um, of, of ways to know that you're struggling, but it's not necessarily PTSD yet. Uh, what we want to do is we want people to understand that this is completely treatable, preventable, fixable. We can mitigate it. We can treat it. But whatever it is, don't live with it, right? The, the biggest thing I worry about in all of this is that many therapists, as you know, they hear that you're a first responder. Oh, you're a wildland firefighter. Oh, you're a police officer. You have PTSD without even like hearing about this person's history, they just go straight to PTSD. And, and the patient's like, well, crap, now I have PTSD. And now I'm, you know, now I have this diagnosis. And, and you really have to understand trauma and what public safety people do and how they train 
um, and they're, you know, the overall just sort of, you know, exposure to things progressively over time as we get, you know, more and more experienced and all of that matters. So it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a complicated sort of a, a topic. Um, obviously where we don't want to get is to the end of the continuum with, with the PTSD. Um, and, and so understanding that, that the, the quicker we just reach out and get help and good help and competent help, the more we can, we can really mitigate all of this. Wow. That's, that's really in depth. Thank you so much. And, you know, I want to go one layer deeper into this and, and, you know, I think it's, it's been a big problem in the city fire and EMS, but it's really starting to take hold in the wildland fire community. And one of the big things is, is, you know, the, the land management agencies aren't tracking uh, seasonals very well in the off season because they're not technically employees. Uh, and there's an effort to start tracking this, but there has been a very big rise in, in suicide in, in the wildland fire community. And, and I want to get your thoughts on how does this play into that, you know? Absolutely. So, so everybody, I, I think the misperception has been, well, it's wildland. So it's just, you know, maybe a few dead animals and some burned houses along the way, but what wildland firefighters go through is really, really significant. I mean, considering the the depth and the extremes of the wildland fires we've had of late i mean there's a lot a lot of trauma and you're right the the problem then is that you take these amazing dedicated very resilient professionals you send them out and they're exposed to awful events and and carnage and death and destruction and you you can you basically you also add on the other layer is the fact that when you're employed your sleep is minimal and when you're not sleeping, your mental health starts to suffer. And then, you know, of course, and, and I'll tell you, honestly, I, I have a, an office in Phoenix. I'm licensed in Arizona. And I've worked with a lot of the West Valley firefighters as they've come back from wildland fires. And they are just depleted, like they're exhausted. And just standing next to them, like hearing them breathe, I'm worried about them, much less their mental health. Like I'm worried about their physical health. I just, I, they, everybody comes home and they're sick. and. And they're exhausted and then they go back to normal duties they're back on their shift and you know running calls and all of that they have minimal downtime and the departments who are going to lose their firefighters are the ones who decide well this was an extra duty or you know they were technically not employed by us when they went out on wildland or wildlands their whatever agency brought them out is supposed to take care of that that but that's that's not happening it's kind of like when we hire a first responder who is in the army or the marine corps and the chief says well the PTSD is from the Marine Corps, so it was their responsibility to fix it. And it's like, well, no, Chief, now it's yours because you now this is your responsibility because this is this is your police officer, this is your firefighter, and so all of this is like a perfect storm for zero care and no accountability on anybody's part, and that that's that is very very detrimental. I see this with search and rescue quite a bit when people go on these these task force and such. You know, that's a big thing in Texas is you deploy on a task force and you go to, you know, you go to ground zero, you go to Oklahoma city and you experience all this trauma and you know, the task force is going to say, well, it's the agency's responsibility because they're employed there. And the, the, the agency is saying, well, this was not our, on our watch. And so it's not our thing. And they, who suffers, you know, who suffers is the first responder and their family members. And it's, um, boy, talk about being caught in, in just sort of a vortex of, of lack of care. It's awful. Yeah. 
Thank, thank you for, for that insight into the wildland fire uh, trauma. I don't think that's, it's a very understood thing for, for the wildland fire community that it's, um, we are, you know, taking apart cars with, you know, dead bodies. We're not going to the house fires with dead bodies, but there's, that risk is so extreme every single day. It just wears on you. And, and like you said, the physical exhaustion is, is um, unbelievable. And, you know, some of the testing uh, research they've done on, you know, hotshot crews that they're, they're actually at the level of Olympic athletes as far as physical exertion for, you know, 14, 12, 16 hours a day. So it's, it is an extreme uh, situation, even though there's not that, you know, visual trauma like other first responders. So thank you for acknowledging that. Absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to um, kind of switch a little bit into more of the prevention stuff and, and the, um, could you educate us all on, on SISM and what that means and how does that prevent some of these, these uh, movies repeating and things like that? So my, my favorite thing is to train uh, first responders to help their own, to be that front line of, uh, you know, psychological first aid and crisis intervention. And so what, what I like to do is, is I really train our teams to meet people where they are with what they need when they need it. So we start at the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is where everybody goes in a crisis. And that hierarchy of needs, it looks like a pyramid. And we all go to the base, you know, in a crisis. And the base is food, water, clothing, shelter, and safety. And um, we start there and we make sure that everybody day to day is progressing in terms of their needs being met physically first and then emotionally. What happens as we exit the crisis state, we kind of move up the, the uh, hierarchy of needs to more like the psychological and esteem type needs. And that's usually when you're, when you're ready to talk about it. And what I train the peer support team members to do is to really normalize and educate, first of all, when, when as people move up that hierarchy of needs, and to keep their fingers on the pulse of, of what's going on. And we, we always educate all of our customers, and then peer support reiterates it, that what we're looking for, like I said earlier, is that it's seven days post-incident, we want that call starting to fade. And at 14 days, we want it banked in their long-term memory. And if at 14 days, this call is just kind of sitting, just staring you in the face all the time, and it's you know wreaking havoc on your sleep, and you're super irritated, and you're exhausted, it's time to get help. And that's where we come in. We do, um, we do EMDR, the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing preventatively now, because we have figured out that it is this, such an amazing tool. My philosophy is why are we gonna sit around and wait and see if it becomes PTSD? Let's hit it now, let's mitigate it. And it's so fast and it's so effective. Um, when the client is ready, we do it. And uh, it's amazing to watch because people just bounce back. And the beauty is first responders are really, really motivated to bounce back. And so what we do is we completely circumvent all of the down, the down the path problems that we could potentially run into by working in conjunction with peer support, normalizing, educating, validating, and then getting them in for, for you know, the, the trauma care. Wow, that's so amazing doing the, the uh, rapid eye movement more of in a preventative sense. And that's, uh, that's just so amazing. How does that work? You know, I, I want to hear more about how the EMDMR works. And, and I just want to ask a question here as, as you know, I'm, I'm not a clinical person by any means. Um, and the people that I know that have, have gone through EMDMR kind of have this, they said they felt like 
almost when they got out of the session, like they were really confused and deoriented, uh, disoriented and, and it wasn't a very pleasant experience. And uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as well as, you know, we talked to earlier a little bit about, you know, I'm on this path to mental emotional release technique and, and timeline therapy and those kinds of things. And um, I want to know if you've heard of that, if you've um, seen it or yeah, your thoughts on both of those. Absolutely. So, so the EMDR, what it does is it, it takes the trauma that's locked up in the frontal lobe of the brain and it, it actually um, gets the frontal lobe to open the synapses and to um, process, download, and move the images from your um, frontal lobe to your long-term memory. Now, the, the thing about it is it is intense and it is exhausting. Um, but, but people should not be walking out of session like disoriented and non-functioning. One thing I've noticed about EMDR is, so I was trained in, my first day of my training was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And um, back then they trained us to do long sessions to, to allow the, the patient's brain to process whatever trauma they wanted to process and it was super effective. But that's also when managed care considered EMDR voodoo and hocus pocus and um, <laughs> and so it was, it was one of those things where we were given a lot of latitude to really get the brain to heal. Um, after all the studies and all that, then, you know, then managed care began to cover it, but they only want to pay their therapist for one session, one hour a week for a session. And so they started to break it up into tiny pieces. And I can honestly say that the brain of the first responder does not work uh, in tiny segments. It's when we open that and we start to move the trauma, we, you know, whatever it is we start with, when the brain starts to move basically to every bad pediatric call this paramedic has ever run, or, you know, every fatality collision this, this DPS trooper has ever been on, the brain's gonna go there. And when we try to shut that down, that's what leads to the disorientation. I have had people who've had clinicians who try to do the very small snippet type EMDRs, and they said, you know, they went out in the parking lot and they kind of it took them a while to regroup. Um, when we do it and we let the brain do what it needs to do, and therefore we're basically blocking, uh, you know, generally it's three hours that we're blocking for our patients, um, the work gets done. You are exhausted, but what happens is the relief is, is instant because we're not shutting down what the brain is trying to process. So I worry when I hear that because that should not be happening. Um, and it breaks my heart because I don't want people to be like, well, I don't, just don't want to ever do that again because it was awful. I think, that, I think that there is a distinct protocol for first responders. And that's part of my pet peeve. If you've read my, my first book, you know that my pet peeve is clinicians who don't understand first responders who say they work with first responders. And so I think it's it's important to really reconsider uh, what we're doing in terms of, you know, people who have furnace blast trauma. I've noticed that the EMDR training now is kind of designed for, oh, you know, I witnessed this car wreck and it really upset me. And it's like, you know, not for the, oh, we ran this car wreck and, you know, there's a decapitation and, you know, it's a quadruple fatality. And that's, that's the level that our patients come in at. And so I think that um, careful consideration has to be given to the clinician who's doing it to make sure that they're really competent at the level of trauma that first responders have. Um, in terms of, of the things that you're heading, absolutely everything you're doing, right? Anything, anything that works for any patient to give them relief, to help the brain and the body unlock that trauma is great. And, and you know, EMDR is not for everybody. No one modality is for everybody, but everything that, that you're, that the timeline therapy, all of it, all of it really helps 
normalize, validate, and get get first responders to process those traumas. And you know, the relief is is amazing. And when people realize that they don't have to hold on to this forever, then it's a win. Yeah, yeah. And you know, just a quick story here. My when I did my breakthrough session or my own timeline therapy uh, with uh, Alan and Cindy. Shout out to them. Thank you. And uh, you know, for me, I had this uh, anxiety about time that I never really realized that was, I never realized it was so bad, but like if I was five minutes early somewhere, oh, it would just eat me alive. I was so scared. I was so frightened. Um, and then when we went through that timeline therapy process, I realized there was a specific event where like, it was just a crazy experience where we almost got burned over. And I just remember this person you know, um, a supervisor just screaming like, oh, I'm going to be late for this brief. I'm going to be late for this meeting. Like, and it, and it just right there, that was, that was the limiting belief that if, if I'm late, I'm going to die. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and through the MER, I released that. And it was like, there were so many instances like that through the fire career that I got released and it was so eye opening, And, uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful modality. And like you said, I, I'm really interested in, in any modality that helps. And um, thank you yeah. for validating that. That's great. And absolutely, you know, I want to hear some of, you know, some of the results that you've had with your clients and, and um, maybe a couple stories, if you have any, if you're able to tell any. Absolutely. So it's amazing because when first responders hear, heal, they're like, Tanya, tell my story. Tell, if it helps others, tell my story, which is so amazing. Um, one of my favorites is um, I treated a Dallas firefighter who was in the hot zone on July 7th, 2016, when all the officers were killed. Um, and um, he actually, he actually was very, very brave in his, in his actions that night. And um, he did a lot of amazing things. And the kind of the final thing he did is he transported one of the five officers who died. And uh, he told me that en route, the officer's vitals were good. The officer was talking the whole time about his kids and you know how great his kids are, what an honor it is to be their dad. He had a little entry wound, uh, you know, on his left chest, and you know, and this this firefighter's just talking to him, monitoring his vitals. Everything looks good. And the only thing the police officer asked for was for for the firefighter to take off his boots because he was uncomfortable. And so he did, of course, and they get to the emergency room and this officer crashed and they start the code and, you know, CPR is in progress and he's just standing there in complete disbelief. And his takeaway was like, what did I do? What did I miss? How did I let this happen? How did I let this happen? So he came last August, so it was two years and he was, he was a train wreck. Like he came in and he's in my waiting room. My dog goes out to greet him and he, he won't like inter interact with her at all. He's kind of pushing her away. Like, you know, here comes a sweet dog and he's like, nothing is consoling him. And so we, we went to work um, and, and we did EMDR and he, it was amazing because he had not been out of the back of that ambulance for two years and he had not stopped blaming himself for two years. And his interpretation was, I killed this officer. That's what happens with trauma. That's how ugly trauma is, as you know. And so um, in his EMDR session, in the first set, he really processed the transport and talking to the officer. In the second set, he processed more of the transport. In the third set, he got his brain took him to when he got to the ER and the officer basically coded. And in the fourth set, very interestingly, he pulled up a conversation that he had suppressed 
with a trauma surgeon. This conversation happened three days after, three or four days after the event. And the trauma surgeon said, listen, he said, if we had shot the officer in the OR, we could not have saved his life. No one, be- no one can believe that he was talking the whole way to the ER. He was running on pure adrenaline. There's nothing we could have done to save him. And then the trauma surgeon tagged on, so you just need to get over it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, that was such a perfect validation of, of what happened, except for the you just need to get over it. So I told this firefighter, taking off the last statement from the trauma surgeon, they just, you just need to get over it. I said, I want you to focus on that conversation in the next, in the next EMDR set. And so he did. And when I finished that set, I said, what happened there? And he looked at me and he said, Tanya, I just realized that I didn't kill him. Absolutely. You did not kill him. And he's like, for the first time in two years, I actually believe that. And I was like, rock on, keep going. So we cleaned up the rest of the event. And then he basically processed every bad pediatric call he's ever had as a Dallas firefighter. And there were a lot. And the, the relief was instant. And you could tell that he had forgiven himself. Now, the objective outsider looking in, we all know he didn't kill this officer, of course. But he could not, he could not go there because that's what trauma does to you. It's ugly and it just sits in your face and it tells you how you were helpless or you couldn't do your job or you know how much you suck or how stupid you are. I mean, these are the messages that trauma tells your brain. And this person walked out of my office like a changed person. On, you know, I see him on Facebook and he's at T-ball practice and he's at soccer practice. And I met his wife at a conference a couple, couple uh, weeks ago and she's like, I have my husband back. And it's like victory. <laughs> like you can't beat that. Like how, how great is that? Right. And that's an example of, of, you know, a major, major event. And a lot of times what we're EMDRing is kind of the accumulation of what I call the psychic battering of call after call after call after call. And then it was that one call where you, you know, you were working on this kid and you look down and this kid has like teenage mutant ninja turtle underwear on and your kid has the same underwear and it completely rocks your world. And this is the one, this is the type of thing where first responders are like, I don't understand why I'm so upset because this is not, this is not like a 9-11 kind of trauma. And it's like, oh, but it, but it is to your brain, right? And so all of that, all of that from, from multiple small events to large events to a combination of both, when your brain heals from that, the number one emotion that gets processed in EMDR is helplessness. And when that goes away, all of a sudden people realize, well, I did my job and I can live with that. And how great is that? Wow. That's, that is an amazing story. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, I'm curious if, if you've seen this in, in your patients that you're working with that when they have that major relief or release of like, I didn't kill that police officer. Have you noticed their, their facial features completely changing almost like it's a, it's a, at the subconscious level, you know, that their, their whole body changes in, in that instant almost. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite things to, to tell them is I will say, I wish I had a mirror right now. Your whole demeanor has completely shifted. Your whole affect has completely changed. And I'll say, you should see the relief in your eyes, like from where you walked in to where you are now. It's amazing. Like you see, you see bodies relax for the first time ever in however long. You see people actually breathe, like breathe like they mean it. 
and you see just delight in people's eyes and it's like their their color comes back and their they, that you know their their sassiness comes back and all it's like their spirit is back and it is phenomenal this is this is why i say i have the best job in the world like you can't do this <laughs> right? yeah yeah wow that's it is phenomenal yeah 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 definitely uh saw that in in some of the mer sessions and uh it's just so unbelievable that major shift when people have that and uh you know i'm curious has there you know you spoke about some research um has there been brain scans or brain um, imaging of you know what's going on during uh, emdmr or anything like that or before and after so I believe so. There's a company uh, called Seroscan in Denver that was looking at doing that. I don't know if they ever did. Um, what I what I believe is that, from what I remember reading in an article a few years ago, is that the scans are showing the increased blood flow um, after EMDR and how the, the the blood flow patterns start to change. So there's you know, and what they're finding also is that the hippocampus. Um, is remarkably changing in the aftermath because the hippocampus is the thing that gets damaged by the cortisol and they're finding that it's generating new neural pathways and growing cells back. So, so there have been some, I can't cite any specifically. Um, and so, but I know that, that a lot of companies have, have been doing them and, uh, and it's, it's phenomenal. Wow. That's, uh, just the fact that there's, you know, it's, potentially reversible even at the physical level um and of course we've been talking about the mental emotional level that it is reversible but at the physical level that's that's huge that that evidence is there and uh you know i want to go one one layer deeper here and and ask you about you know your opinion on this and kind of what you're seeing in in this general field is is some of the the psychedelic assisted trials that are going on right now psychedelic assisted therapy and things like that and your thoughts well, I think um, what I'm finding, my patients who've tried that are not having success. Um, I think everybody wants a quick, easy sort of fix. And um, I think the brain has to do a certain amount of work in order to heal. So I have worked with people who've, who've tried the ketamine infusion and a couple other uh, newer things, and they're still here. And they're still like, yeah, you know, I felt better for a couple of days, but then it's back. And so... While I think it may assist in, um, in you know, stabilizing someone through a moment um, and getting someone a little bit of relief immediately, it's for the long term, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't seen the results that, that I think people are hoping for. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, so I saw on your website, there's uh, this whole movement of suck at P PTSD and uh, yeah, I wanted to hear the story on how it all started and, and kind of where that's going. And, and I want my bracelet someday. <laughs> I will send you as many as you want. So that was actually started by a former patient of mine who had very, 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 very bad PTSD um, from work, workplace trauma. Um, and so we worked through it. Uh, it was a lot of work. It was like blood, sweat, and tears, hard, hard therapy. And um, I'm super, super proud of this patient. So fast forward, this patient goes on vacation to Chicago. It's July of 2015. And I start getting these text messages. And the text messages are all the sites and, and places this person's going and all the cool stuff they're doing. 
And what I see are the sites and the, the cool stuff, but what I really see are all these people standing around, like, you know, and that would have never happened. Being in crowds would have never happened two months prior. And so in this text conversation, I said, I am so proud of you. And the patient replied, I'm proud of me too. And then I got hashtag suck it PTSD because you always say suck it up doesn't work. And I was like, oh, I love it. Can I use the hashtag? And they're like, of course. So I started using the hashtag and then um, same patient came back from vacation and brought me the prototype of the wristbands. Um, the first one was camo. And it was really funny because when it got wet or when you would sweat, it would just kind of bleed into this glob of orange and I mean, sorry, a glob of green and brown. And so there are still seven people who wear their globby green brown wristband with it just all bled basically. And <laughs> you can't even tell what it says. And so it was, it was really quite interesting the way it started because I have these, you know, these five wrist wristbands and I took a picture of them and I put it on Facebook and I'm like, hey, friends, what do you think? And everybody's like, well, where can we get one? And so innocently um, in 2015, we ordered 200 and I thought I'll never get rid of these. And they were gone like overnight. <laughs> so we started to ship them out and we started to hand them out at conferences and trainings and such. And we give them out to all the cadets when we go to our customers and teach in the academy and all that stuff. And to date, we've put over 27,000 wristbands on first responders and veterans across the country and also in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And so I call it hashtag suck it PTSD nation. Um, you can probably tell we're not like a normal practice where we're, you know, <laughs> we're not exactly artificial and appropriate. Um, and so, <laughs> so they can, we can ask for a better hashtag. And, uh, and it's just so fun. And it's really fun to see people when I'm out and about at different events and stuff to see people with their wristband on, right? Or when they come to therapy and their wristband is on. And what I've noticed is that when I post a picture and people start chiming in, what's happening is, this is why I call it hashtag suck at PTSD nation, is because people cheer each other on. And, you know, someone gets a wristband and they're like, you know, I'm starting my treatment. Here's my photo of my wristband on my wrist, you know, with a fire truck behind it or whatever. And people chime in and they're like, you know, go brother, go, you got this, you know, don't give up. And there's, so all of a sudden it's kind of become this thing. And, um, and I just love it. My favorite, favorite suck at PTSD wristband story is um, a uh, Pinal County Sheriff's deputy. I had done their peer support training. He has his wristband on and it's Veterans Day and he's working the parade, he's on, on duty. And he looks over at a veteran who's watching the parade and that veteran has their wristband on. And so the deputy walked up to the veteran and he held out his, his arm and he's like, do you know Tanya? And he said, I do. And he said that they became like fast friends, like brothers. And he said that they shared their stories with each other and they support each other and they're, they're buddies now. I mean, how great is that? Like, when does that happen? <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's such a beautiful way to create more normalization and validation and, and uh, really start crushing the stigma, you know, and, exactly. and uh, wow, that was such an easy, like beautiful, like, way to do that oh thank you so much yep i want to join the hashtag suck at ptsd nation so uh, you bet yes you bet. My, assistant, sounds... my assistant mails them out every friday and we love to send them um people will ask for one or two we're going to send you five or six because we know that you have friends that will wear them 
And so it's just this really cool thing we do and, you know, and we order, we order by the thousand now. So <laughs> no more orders of 200. <laughs> That's so cool. And so on that same line is, is the stigma that I think is so prevalent in, you know, all the fire departments, all the EMS, uh, you know, the wildland fire, the veterans, you know, it's, it's so prevalent that just suck it up and, and the stigma of PTSD and all of that. And, and, um, you know, I just wanted to hear more about other, other ways that, that you're working on breaking that stigma. I think the, the documentary was huge because, um, you know, the, the whole point behind the documentary, which is on smashingthestigma.com, was to show seven people who walked through hell. None of these people were punished for getting help. None of them were taken off the line. Everybody continued normal duties. Nobody was ostracized or outcast or anything like that. Now, they didn't go and tell everybody that they were going through this, but after the healing process, they wanted to tell everybody. And so we did this documentary. And, you know, in that documentary, I really I call out leadership gently, but I call out leadership. And I point out that if you give someone good care for their mental health and they heal and they recover, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the, the termination of and rehiring of and, you know, or somebody quits and they have to hire somebody new. And I point out that putting someone through a police or fire academy at a minimum is $30,000. And then there's the orientation and then there's, you know, the FTO process and the fact that you have a brand new person who knows really very little um, because when you come out of school, you know, the basics. And so losing the wisdom is not okay. And so we all know, let's all recognize that we're going to stick our first responders into the worst situations and the worst days of people's lives into chaos and violence and madness and, you know, crap and, and child abuse and all the things that you guys run towards when people dial 911 because, you know, stuff is falling apart. And we need to acknowledge that over time, that is going to have a negative impact on your brain. And when it does, you will get help. And this is what we do. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's an uphill battle. It is a work in progress. It's gotten better. Um, but I've fought this battle my whole 28 years. And then you usually have, you know, when leadership gets it, it's because they remember what it was like to run those calls and to have those nightmares and to have those struggles and to have that anxieties you're putting on your uniform, the leadership, the leadership who gets it, you know, you can tell because there's a lot of wisdom in their eyes and wisdom causes gray hair. And so more, the more we push this, the more we fight this battle, hopefully the less and less we'll have that suck it up mentality from leadership. But, you know, I was, I was just traveling across the country. I was in a different state with a, with a, with a fire department and the next county over their leadership is still very much suck it up. And I just, I just want to scream. Like I, I just, how do you, how do you do that to your people? Right. Cause your people will tell you in every way possible that they're struggling and they're suffering and then you're just going to budget for attrition and get rid of them as your only solution. And that's really unacceptable. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the wildland fire community, I think the biggest thing is, is there's the stigma is a little bit deeper because we don't see the trauma visually as much and people are really in denial about it, in my opinion. And I think the, the suck it up mentality oftentimes, turn, oftentimes turns into bullying in the workplace. And it's just so extreme in the wildland fire community within the government agencies. It's just a really big problem that 
just adds on to onto those traumatic events, onto that grind that's just grinding you down as a first responder and and then getting bullied about it at work. It's just unbelievable, you know? Yeah. And uh, like you said, it just makes you want to scream and it's so hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I, I always look at the people who bully like that and I always think, wow, they must be in a lot of pain to, to be that bully and to, they must be either so afraid that what's happening to you is going to happen to me or they're demonstrating what's happening to you has been happening to me already. I just, it is the, always the very, very tough, tough ones that when they come here for help, they're so ashamed, they're so embarrassed and they can't believe they need help. And then as we heal and we get through the trauma, a lot of times what they do is they go make amends with people that they've bullied about this very subject. I, I always try to take a, a deep breath and take a step back and look at that behavior as indicative of something that's going on. Not, it's not, no one has nerves of steel and, you know, is made of Kevlar. No one, you know, no one has the, the brain capacity to just not be impacted by, by something along the way. And, um, and when I see that, I'm like, yeah, well, I know where that's coming from. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that, that it's, you know, their internal baggage or something that's going on that they're dealing with that's causing that, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm curious on on some of the clients that go through um, the EMDMR and, and kind of the afterwards, you know, what happens after? Are they continuing therapy for a year or two or what's that future plan, you know, goal setting, um, new life creation type? type experience for for clients what's that look like so it's different for everybody um what one thing we've noticed when i first started doing mdr um i noticed that like i mentally had to catch up to my patients because they were discharging a lot sooner and so it, it's different for everybody after emdr depending on like the number of goals and the severity of the situation and all that that'll really determine how long someone's going to continue um, we do have a lot of folks who come from across the country to do a two-day intensive, and then we hand them off to their, their sort of normal therapist who may not be as, you know, a student dealing with, with first responder type issues, but they go ahead and, you know, can work with their regular counselor on, you know, cleaning up marriage issues or financial issues or those kinds of things that, a, you know, a sort of a normal therapist would be, would be good at. It, it just varies, but we do have a lot of people who discharge very quickly after EMDR because when the trauma gets resolved, like, you know, everything starts to fall back into line. They're back in the gym, they're, you know, they're communicating with their spouse or they're in marriage therapy or, you know, they're doing, they're do, they start to do all the right things for self-care and then the resilience comes up. And so when we, we agree it's time for discharge, we will, we will do that, but it, it just really varies on the client. Okay. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing. And, and, uh, you know, what, do you have any future plans for, for your program, for your mission? Is there anything coming up the next year, six months, two years that's, uh, you're really excited about? Um, well, so <laughs> every day is crazy for me. Um, every day is full. And so I, I just wrote my fourth book, which is for, uh, family members. It's called first responder families caring for the hidden heroes. And I think that right now we're just kind of in the, in the rhythm of, of continuing to teach and train and, uh, and grow our customer base, which keeps growing really very quickly. Um, you know, I, way on the sort of back burner is another documentary, but I don't, I haven't, it hasn't quite hit me yet. Usually what, when my ideas hit me for books or the documentary, it's like all of a sudden I like 
I have a moment where I'm like, ding, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And so um, it just kind of comes to me. I think it comes to me when I'm ready to go do it. And so, um, so just continuing to heal and uh, grow the practice and grow clinicians that are really good with first responders um, and, uh, and just that the mission of healing and, and educating and training is, is the main one. Wow. What a mission you're on. It's Thank so you. amazing. Thank you. I love it. Such a powerful thing that you're doing. And um, thank you from the bottom of my heart again. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty complete with what we've talked about today. Do you have anything that you'd like to talk about that you'd want to bring up that we can um, give any questions for me? Um, I, I think the only thing I, I would want to say is, is just keep doing what you're doing and fighting the stigma and your, your world is very, very difficult. And, um, and I think slowly but surely you're going to chip away at the, the whole suck it up mentality and the, the whole stigma thing. And I think, but we all do this together. Like this is all of our fight together and slowly but surely it, we will change the culture. And I, I would say just one thing to you is just don't give up on that because, because when you help one person, they are going to tell two people what happened and then it spreads and that's how we change it. It's, um, it's, I always say that changing a culture is slow, like molasses, like really slow and, and just don't give up because, because saving one life is, is worth it, um, worth all of it. And so, so I would just say, and to the listeners, if this is your culture, your environment, just don't give up, just keep, keep educating, keep plotting away, keep training, keep normalizing, keep pushing your, your peer support team forward, keep, keep going with good programs because it all pays off. That's so awesome. And, and, you know, I think kind of what I'm taking away from your message is really the, the self-care and prevention is really the priority in, in a long-term, you know, first responder career. It has to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we teach a resilience class and it starts with simple things like hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. And then we get into like your family, your faith, your friends and your hobbies, you know, your life outside the job. And then we work on, you know, getting back to the, the why you do what you do, which is your altruism, you know, your moral strength, all of that matters. And so, you know, really the self-care and having a life outside the job and, and doing, doing good for others, there's, that is total resilience right there. And it's, um, it's amazing because when your resilience is high, no matter what happens to you, you're going to come back. You're going to face the adversity and you're going to come back. Yeah. Everybody should have that goal. That's, that's a, that's amazing. Just coming right back and, and going along with the mission, whatever you're doing out there. And um, yeah. thank you so much, Tanya, where can people find you and um, your websites and books and everything that you're doing live events and yeah. Absolutely. So my website is um, www.tanya, and then Glenn with two N's. Um, and from there, you, you'll find all the book information. The book is available through the publisher, also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that stuff. All the books are there. Um, also the documentary, uh, there's a link on the main page that takes you to Smashing the Stigma, um, which anybody can watch anytime. Um, it, it's 46 minutes and uh, it's, it's available to, to anybody at any time. And so that's, 
that's the best way to reach me and find me. Um, a lot of my public speaking I do in, it's, a, it's like a closed engagement, like a conference where people have to sign up or that kind of thing. And so I, I typically don't post my, my schedule, but I do on Facebook and um, social media, not on my website, but on, on social media, I usually do conferences where I'm going to be and I try to give as much warning as possible. Okay, great, great. And uh, yes, thank you so much for joining me on the show and, and for all your wisdom in, in this specific area. And just thank you again for everything that you're doing. And uh, you're an inspiration to us all. So um, thank you. Thank and you. I and I hope we can uh, connect, you know, with a live event or doing uh, some more interviews and get on the podcast, whatever it is, I'd like to stay in touch with you and, and grow this relationship. I would love that. I really appreciate the opportunity and I so appreciate everything that you're doing for others. You keep going. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you have uh, a wonderful rest of your day. Okay. And uh, thank you everybody. This is a sacred ancestry podcast and uh, we'll catch you on the next one and check out the show notes for everything Tanya Glenn and everything mental health with first responders. All right. <laughs>